0: Good morning, King's Cross. Good to be with you. Good to see you this beautiful, sunshiny, warm morning, or maybe not quite. Uh, We got a little taste of spring in February, spoiled us a little bit this week, and then snapped back to reality uh, even on this Sunday morning, but glad you're here, glad we could sit underneath God's Word. i just ask that you pray with me one more time as I ask the Lord for help. Father, in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'd ask you, would you give me help to preach your Word faithfully? Would you give us hearts to hear your word faithfully? And even as we hear your word, would you give us wills to obey your word, not merely to be hearers, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, it is a little chilly this morning and uh, the rain and kind of all of that, but I had some conversations this week that reminded me that Minnesota cold is built different. Like that's a different kind of cold where you're in Minnesota. I have a pastor friend, Jason Redberg, who's a pastor there, and, uh, and he was reminding me. Now, he's got a wonderful church. He loves living there. He was born in the Midwest, and, uh, and so he loves it. He loves the weather. He loves the cold. None of it is he's whining or complaining about, but I have another friend named Nate Aiken who went up to a conference in back-to-back Januaries, went up to this conference, and they were telling me about this Minnesota cold and the different kind of cold that happens in Minnesota. And the reason is the second year Nate went up to that conference. It was 25 degrees Now you might think that doesn't sound too bad 25 degrees. That's cold, but we have that kind of cold in North Carolina That's not too bad The reason I highlight that 25 degrees in the second year is because it was 65 degrees warmer than the previous year Yeah, do the math negative 40 the previous year when he went to Minnesota Minnesota cold is built different And so they told me stories about when it's that cold and you walk outside, immediately your nose hairs freeze inside your nose, like you feel like your nose harden up as it is so cold. It's just a different kind of cold. But Pastor Jason loves Minnesota. He loves the cold, and so even he'll talk about that cold and those experiences, and he does it with affection, not with complaint. And he was describing to us the beauty of snow on the ground for months and months and months and months and months and months months of the year. And he kind of described, he got into this moment and you could tell there was some nostalgia, there was some joy, there was some, he was trying to help us understand the beauty of Minnesota. And what he said was, no, no, but you guys don't understand. The snow melts and when it does, the greens that burst forth, the colors that shine forth, and, and then the flowers begin to spring, and the beauty that's there. And, and he went on and on and on just about the glory underneath that snow. And he said by the time it gets into sun, summer that it's enchanting. Now, I might be a bit skeptical of his joy from my own personal experience and what I would think about negative 40 degrees. But I know that this man was giving testimony to something that he really indeed loved that this beautiful new life, this new resurrection happens every spring. And that underneath that snow, somehow all of that cold, all of that snow, when it all melts, nurtures the ground such that it produces this incredibly beautiful fruit in this beautiful scene. Whatever that snow is doing that this southerner would never want to experience for that long is doing something good that produces fruit underneath it. Breathtaking beauty that comes out of it. Now I think we live in a culture That views what we're going to talk about today similar to the way this southerner might view that much snow Is if there's that much snow that's only surely oppressive and holding down that which is underneath and That's the concept of authority That we might assume authority is bad and would oppress any and everything underneath it When we come to the scriptures what we find out is that good authority like the snow in Minnesota actually nourishes that which is underneath it and calls it to flourish and to grow. The authority itself is not bad, but indeed can be a glorious gift when used rightly. King David, in his final words, the great King David, leaves us, kind of his final speech, the words of wisdom he wants to leave uh, at the end of his rule and reign, speaks of God's authority more like my friend Jason speaks of Minnesota weather than I would speak of Minnesota weather and snow. David says this, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain or snow in our illustration that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Jason loves Minnesota weather because he knows that beauty is going to burst forth from underneath that snow blanket. God loves just authority because He knows the beauty that will burst forth underneath the authority of, or, of uh, the, uh, the the goodness of just authority. Good authority, contrary to popular opinion, isn't oppressive, but instead is a great blessing because God designed it that way. That actually explains to us why it's so painful when authority is abused. Because it's supposed to be so good, authority's supposed to bless those underneath it. So when that authority that's supposed to be so good is abused, it's uniquely evil and uniquely painful. When the snow plays its role correctly, it leads to beauty and flourishing. When human authorities rule in the fear of the Lord, reflecting and pointing to God's good authority, then those, those underneath that rule flourish. Now if the snow stayed uh, all throughout the year, multiple feet deep, then it would indeed be oppressive and deadly to most of the vegetation underneath it. But it doesn't. There are seasons in Minnesota, and God puts authority in place to cause certain growth underneath that authority. Now, the problem with all of this is we're all sinful. And all of us assume, and particularly in our day, is bad, and we ought to rebel against it. We ought to be skeptical of it. And again, abusive authority is awful. We ought to to lament and grieve that. But good authority is a gift. But if you think it's not natural for us to be sinful, I would normally just say, we'll just have some kids. But this church currently has no problem having kids. (laughs) That's happening a lot. So I could just say, look around you, and we'll see so many examples of these perfect, precious, beautiful, lovely little sinners. (laughs) Like rebelling against authority is so natural. Just look at the children. Just look at your own heart. But authority itself, when one rules justly, is a good gift from God. So what does God mean for us to learn how to rightly relate to authority? That should be the question. If authority is supposed to be good and cause us to flourish, where does God mean for us to learn from good authority? Well, that's where we turn to today in the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. We are to honor our father and mother so that we might learn to live the abundant life God has called us to live, to understand and relate to authority rightly that we might flourish. We're to honor our father and mother that we might live this life, that God has called us to live a good life. Now, in our study of the 10 commandments, we're moving to the second tablet of the law. So uh, by that, I mean the first four Commandments are dealing with God so we've been walking through these commandments the first commandment no other gods And so we said in our study together. We're not to allow anything to rival our allegiance to the one true God Second commandment no self-made idols. We're not to worship the true God, but in the wrong way Third commandment do not take the Lord's name in vain. We're not to misrepresent the God whom we worship and follow And then last week we looked at the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy We are to rest in his finished work, not in our own. So those are commandments one through four in the first tablet of the law, and all of those are vertical, our relationship with God. Here's how we ought to live in relation to God. But now five through 10 deals with our horizontal relationships, our relationship with our neighbor, how we relate to one another. So there's vertical relationship with God, and then there's horizontal relationship with one another. So five through 10 is now going to address how we relate to one another. And just like the first commandment was the foundation of all of the rest, so too is the fifth commandment the foundation of the rest uh, in the the second tablet of the law. So if you want to know how to be a good neighbor, we're going to get through all of them, but you've got to start with learning how to be a good neighbor from learning how to honor your mother and your father. When Jesus was approached and asked about the greatest commandment, he responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, summarizing everything taught in those first four. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So again, first tablet of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. Second tablet of the law, five through 10, love your neighbor as yourself. And again, this fifth commandment, how we relate to mother and father, then sets us up to love our neighbors. Ultimately, this commandment is about more than just honoring your father and your mother. It's about honoring all God-given authority that he's put into place so that you can be a good neighbor in the land he's called you to live in. So what that means just by implication, before we even get into it this morning, is you break the fifth commandment every time you dishonor any authority God has put into place. And God has put into place every authority. So somebody look at your neighbor and say, we all in trouble on this one. (laughs) like we're in trouble because we naturally don't like authority. And where we naturally don't like authority, we naturally don't like the God who placed all authority in place. And so we see, again, the need for a Savior even from the get-go. But the fifth commandment teaches that we're to honor our parents and by implication all divinely placed authorities in our lives that we might live this blessed life God has called us to live. So I just want to ask and answer a few questions, again, as we walk through the text, kind of as we've been doing along the way. First, what is commanded in the fifth commandment? What is commanded in the fifth commandment? So very simply, uh, honor your father and your mother. What does it mean to honor? This comes from the Hebrew word uh, kabod, which just communicates that it's, it's weighty, that there's a glory, a weight, a heaviness. So you're, you're to give weight and glory and heaviness to this institution, this office, this, response, this, this, this uh, uh, thing that God has put into place, this authority over you, namely your mother and your father. Parenting is a weighty, worthy, glorious role. Now, again, this doesn't mean all parents are perfect. No no one parent is in a fallen world. But this role that God has put into place, this institution, is something that God says is worthy of you putting weight and honor and respect and dignity into. Now, we also see in Scripture where parents are dishonored. In fact, Jesus confronts this early on in his ministry uh, as some of the religious leaders were coming up with ways to not honor the parents the way they ought to. So we see dishonor and what that looks like. Matthew 15, verse 1. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat, So notice the scene, they come up like, hey, we have some certain traditions. Your disciples aren't following them. We don't appreciate that. They need to wash their hands and do some rituals before they eat to get ready to make sure they're clean the way we think they need to be clean before they partake in food. But Jesus answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So clearly what some of these religious leaders were saying to their parents, and in this context, honor is talking about financial provision. Oh, I don't have to take care of my parents financially because my finances are uniquely being given to the service of God. So they're justifying not giving provision to their parents because they're greedy and they're saying, I'm serving God. And in this moment, Jesus shows up saying, no, 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 you're going to talk to me about my disciples following the traditions you've made up while you're actually violating the, the scriptures, the commands that God has made clear of honor your mother and your father. And this is a serious sin. You know, I was reading, one, one author was talking about uh, the Ten Commandments. It's almost like we come to them and we think, man, none of them are serious, but in the middle of the Ten Commandments, it's like children's church time. <laughs> You know, God is like, oh, let me talk to the kids for a minute. Adults, y'all can tune out now. Let me talk to the kids for a minute. And we come to the fifth commandment like it's not a big deal. And we just kind of tune out. But as you know, the punishment for dishonoring, disobeying your parents was death. So we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And even in the New Testament, though, though, though there's not the civil laws that there were in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant with Israel, even when we read lists of sins, I think it might be a shock to our system The disobedient to parents is listed among sins that we would say, those are big deals. Well, that's just normal. So apparently something's wrong with how we think about how serious the sin of disobedience to parents is. First Timothy 3.1, for example. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self-control brutal not loving good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god disobedience to parents is a big deal at the end of chapter uh, one in romans when paul's kind of demonstrating the guilt of all of mankind and the rebellion against god similarly he says Speaking to all those who have rejected God suppressed the truth about him, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. So we let children be disobedient to parents, and we just call it a phase. Oh, that's just the terrible twos. That's just the NATO, which is my favorite. Uh, that's, that's creative at least. That's just a NATO. Oh, that's just a teenager. That's what they do. As if that disobedient to parents is not on these kinds of lists. So even children, let me have your attention for a second. To disobey your parents is to disobey God. It's to say, God, I don't care what you say. I'm in charge of me. It's a serious sin, worthy of serious consequences. So children, how do you honor? And even older children, how do we honor our parents? Well, first, for the younger children, I would just say, trust your parents have more wisdom and experience than you do. So it's natural for a child to assume as they get older, particularly as you enter those teenage years, I just think my parents suddenly have become morons. (laughs) And I just think I know more than them. And again, that's part of development and growth, and so this is a natural part of progression and conversation, and parents have to disciple. But, but children, trust that your parents have lived more life than you've lived. That they have experience, and they, they are not perfect parents. You're not honoring them because they're perfect. You're honoring them because God has put them in place and called you to honor them. But also obey them. So the word honor communicates more than obedience, but not less. So we ought to obey our parents. In the Doris household, with our children, we've always used a little phrase to try to help our kids understand what obedience is. We would say, like, when we say obey, what we mean is fast, happy, no excuses. So obey fast. So if you're obeying slowly, like if I tell my children to do something, they do it slowly, they're not obeying. (laughs) That's disobedience. So slow obedience is disobedience. No, as as, as soon as an authority tells you to do something, you ought to do it. Now, if there's a problem, hinder it. I'm not talking about that. If it's just a desire issue, though, that's just dis- so fast, happy. So you don't obey and grumble and complain while you're doing it. That's not obedience, right? That's a, that's a rebellion as you're doing the thing externally, but rebelling with your mouth and with your heart. No, no, it's fast and it's happy. And then no excuses. Like, we don't need a whole list of 10 reasons why you shouldn't have to do this. <laughs> Right, that's, that's the same thing. That's coming from a disobedient heart. So, so children, when your parents tell you to obey, you ought to obey them fast, happy, and with no excuses. That's what obedience is. That's what the scriptures have taught you to do. Also, one way we honor our parents is to just regularly say thank you. Like parents make so many more sacrifices for children than children are aware of. So children, just trust that that's true in any and every time you can thank your parents for the sacrifices they make for you, thank them. Adult children, let me have your attention for a minute. There might be difficult. Your parents might have messed up bad in all kinds of ways, but any and everything they did good for you as a parent, you ought to thank them for. And to express your gratitude for the sacrifices they made for you, as imperfect as they may have been, you express your gratitude. But then another way we honor our parents is by also not just saying thank you, but by saying I'm sorry. When you disobey... When you're not fast happy with no excuses, when you're slow and unhappy and loaded with excuses, and you see that, say, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I disobeyed you. And confess your sin to the Lord. Lord, I'm sorry I disobeyed my parents and that you've called me to obey them. in every possible occasion, children, tell your parents you love them. Adult children, call Mom. Tell her you love her. Call Dad, tell him you love him. Like express not only the gratitude, but just let them know I'm thinking about you, I love you, shoot them a text. You honor them by demonstrating, again, a gratitude for them and a love for them. Now, what about, are there any examples or any moments in life when disobeying is not dishonoring? Fair question. Because some of you have parents who are not Christians. Some of you have parents that do not fear God. Some of you have parents who've been unfaithful as parents. So, it's good to ask the question, it's right to ask the question wait a minute, is there ever a time when I ought to disobey my parents and that's not dishonoring to God? That's a good question to ask, and absolutely it's possible to disobey what's being said and yet still be honoring. So, disobey but not be guilty of dishonoring. Jesus, is a, as a 12 year old boy, his family had gone to Jerusalem for worship. And as they're there they're there they're there for days and there's all kinds of worship going on and then the, kind of the whole squad and, and uh, Folks would travel kind of in bunches with families and communities together and they would go going their worship And then the, the whole squad is leaving within about a day's journey back in leaving Mary and Joseph realize Jesus is not with us Twelve-year-old Jesus is not with us. So they look up. and It's like Mike. Where's Jesus? That's a good question to ask always by the way that'll preach where is Jesus ask that question find him do everything you can find Jesus But they're asking where is Jesus? Like, we can't find him. Where is he? And so they go back and they find him. And, and they see him and they're astonished. And we pick up there in Luke chapter 2, verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Do you not, did, not, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That's meaning the temple. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. He went down with him and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So in this moment, his parents felt like, wait a minute, you didn't do what we thought you ought to do. Clearly Jesus didn't sin. He responds, as, no, no, I was about my father's business. I was worshiping. I was in my father's house. I was doing what God had called me to do. And in that moment, notice clearly he communicated it with a gentleness and a respect that honored Mary. Because she responds to that by saying, or the scripture tells us, she treasured this in her heart. My boy is following the Lord. So I would even just take a second there and say, parents, if your children are being faithful to God, and they're not Jesus, so they're going to mess up. (laughs) Right? He didn't mess up in any of this. Your kids are going to mess up following the Lord. But if they're seeking to follow the Lord, even if they make mistakes on the journey, treasure in your heart that they're seeking to follow the Lord. Your parenting has accomplished its purpose. Parenting is not to keep them forever. Parenting is to send them following God. Even the authority we have is meant to point them to another authority that they would follow him their whole life. So if they're following God, you celebrate that. You honor that. You encourage that. Young people... Especially college students. Let me have a word for just a minute. College students, be careful. The Lord does incredible stuff through college ministries and in college students' lives. He turned my life upside down in college, and I made some of the errors I'm telling you not to make. You get on fire for the Lord. He lights you up with passion for his name and for his kingdom and his word, and suddenly you go home and treat your parents like they're the worst Christians you've ever met. They feel judged by you like suddenly you're correcting everything they're saying you're trying to fix their doctrine you're trying to fix everything they did in their parenting you're trying to count like you're doing no no stop don't do that christ doesn't save you light you up with passion and make you an arrogant jerk No, no no let's go back and let's be humble with our parents let's understand no no maybe they did do some things wrong maybe they're not even christians But as we represent Christ, we ought to be humble as we talk to them about the things God, let them see, man, I don't even know if I agree with all that you're doing. I might even be nervous you in a cult or something, but your life is different and it's in something about it is right. So be humble in this conversation. Now we also see disobedience uh, is not the same thing as dishonoring in the early church. So in Acts chapter five, the apostles are preaching the gospel. And then people are getting upset. It's like, man, too many people are being converted. Too many people are coming to faith. Too many people want to follow Jesus. And we pick up in Acts chapter 5. When they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So clear in this moment, this is highlighted as a positive example. When the world tells you, "Uh uh-uh, you can't preach Jesus is the only way to God, they did not obey. Authorities beat them, charged them not to do something. They disobeyed, but that was not dishonoring authority. How is that not dishonoring? How is that not violating the principle that we're seeing and studying even that comes forward from the broad application of the fifth commandment? Because bowing the knee to Christ is the first step in the pathway to honor all divinely placed authorities. In the end, every single knee will bow and confess Jesus is Lord. Those who bow the knee to Christ now in worship seek to honor every earthly authority in such a way that's consistent of honoring the authority that is himself Christ. So we cannot break the first commandment, no other gods before me, and still keep the fifth commandment. So if an authority says, hey, worship me, not Christ, no thank you, I will worship Christ. That's honoring that authority. Why? Because that authority is abusing their authority. That authority is doing more than what God has given them authority to do. They're saying, I am God, bow to me. We say, no, i bow to Christ and Christ alone. So we're honoring that authority because we're honoring the design that that authority has, not uh, the manipulation of that authority and and the the wrong use of that authority. Honoring, Honoring earthly authority means honoring what that authority is designed by God to do. If they call you to disobey God, you obey God. That's still honoring the authority, even though it's disobedience to them in the moment. So you do not honor your parents who tell you to disobey God by obeying them. So if your parents tell you to disobey God, you disobey your parents. You do it humbly, you do it gently, you do it respectfully, but you obey God over in every single man, woman, boy, or girl. So is it ever right to disobey your parents? Of course it is. If they tell you to disobey God who's revealed himself, and as he's revealed himself in his word. This is why Jesus says in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother and wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then down to verse 33, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is clear. No, no, no. you got to keep the first commandment. I'm the sovereign Lord. You can't break that one and keep the fifth one. If you break that one, you're breaking the fifth one as well. So, again, our supreme allegiance must be to God in Christ. So this is what it means to honor our parents. Second question, what is promised in the fifth commandment? So it's interesting, there's a promise in this one. So it's not merely a command, there's also a promise attached. Now, contextually, remember, Israel's headed into Canaan, the promised land. God has rescued them by his grace. He's delivered them from captivity. He's now giving them his law, so he's rescued them to new life. He's now telling them what this new life is to be like as he takes them into the promised land, and he's letting them know these are the kind of interactions and worship you'll have of me. These are the kind of interactions you ought to have with one another so that you represent me, and I get great glory among the nations. So this is what's happening. This is the context of what's going on. And so what he says is honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now here's not merely talking about literal long days like you'll live the longest. Right? We can survey history and we know people, Christians and non-Christians and folks in Israel are gonna die and live normal lifespans. There's gonna be some exceptions, some longer, some shorter. What's he talking about? Live long in the land. In context, and and, and, uh, what the the word is stating is there's, there's an abundant life. The life you were intended to live in the land. This life he's taking you to in the promised land. As the covenant people of God, there's a unique life he's called you to live. To live that life, then you must honor and obey your parents. But living that life, honor and obeying your parents, leads to living that life. Now, there are exceptions. But wisdom and observing the way God has made the world confirms his promise to be trustworthy and his wisdom are proven right again and again and again. So the book of Proverbs, wisdom literature, right? So are there exceptions? Of course. But is this general wisdom in a broken world true? Yes. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching, a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. The Apostle Paul picks this up in the New Covenant and ties in and connects these dots for us even in the New Covenant. Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So the promise here is obeying your, par- your parents as you grow up is a gift that keeps on giving. There's a promise coming with those who learn to obey your parents, that there's a life meant to live and you're learning to live that life underneath your mother and father that this design will lead to flourishing later it's a gift that keeps on giving and studies after studies after studies show this is the case again of course there are exceptions but the general rule is a healthy home leads to a healthier future for the children so if you want to go do any studies on poverty on folks in jail on abuse on like on anything if you go study any of it like those who flourish are those who grow up and learn under loving parents to honor and obey their parents and those who suffer often missed out on that we get to see it over over and again this is the way of the world albert moeller highlighted i think in 2008 2009 did a usa today article on the profiles of successful ceos discovered something that at some level was shocking to them most of the ceos they profiled that were successful had all been spanked as children that's not, some, that's not a narrative they were wanting to tell in that article. It, it was just ended up being the data. That parents who are involved in instruct, instructing, discipling, even disciplining their children lead them to go on to live the kind of life they're meant to live. That an instruction prepares and teaches them. Parents who lovingly demand that their children honor them as the Lord has commanded prepare their children, even especially and most importantly, for the discipline of the Lord. Like listen, if your children run your house your children will think they get to run God. Like, you're meant to teach them how to submit to loving authority. If you don't do that, they're not going to have any interest and instinct to submit to the loving authority of God. They'll say, no thanks. I've been running this house and I'm going to keep running my life. (laughs) Like, this is the general way of things. And so we must disciple and discipline our children because we're teaching them and pointing to them. Like, we're serving a purpose. We're not the end goal as parents. The end goal is to follow God. This is what the author of Hebrews picks up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse eight. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So if our children are going to live this life, we must discipline them to teach them how to follow God. So let me take a little sidebar to parents for just a minute. Parents, discipleship of your children is your responsibility, not the church's. The church is to equip you and to aid you and to come alongside you, but it's your job to disciple your kids to Christ. You're to teach them the word. You're to pray with them. You're to lead and show them what it looks like to worship Christ and to value the body of Christ and to to hold uh, others accountable, to be held accountable. You're to model for them what hospitality looks like. You're to model to them what generosity and sacrificial loving leadership look like. That's your job. And you can't abdicate that to anyone else. That's your job as a parent to do. The church is to do everything she can to equip you to do that and to come alongside you and help you in that. (coughs) Excuse me, as you disciple them. This is why Paul continues in Ephesians 6 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is why the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's the Shema teaching? Like It's your job to disciple your children and point them to the faithful God who loves them. <clears throat> Proverbs 22, six: train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from you parents, you will account to God for how you discipled your children. Did you point them to Jesus with your words and with your example? Or did you say one thing and do something different? Teach them the word, pray with them, instruct them, show them neighbor love and hospitality. And understand and know that discipline is crucial for discipleship. So this is a crucial part of this. No one else is supposed to discipline your children or, or you are. Now, Pastor Craig has been teaching in one of our discipleship classes on Sunday nights from a book called Habits of the Household. I ordered, I think, about 10 more this week. I put them out in the book uh, bookstall out there just outside the doors. They're there if you want to grab one. But in it, I'd asked him for his notes uh, on the section on discipline. Um, and just as I reviewed them, I was so helped um, and, and like, just greatly appreciated. I just wanted to give you from that book, Eight Habits of Discipline. For parents to just think through, I'm going to give these to you and I'm happy to post them somewhere, send them out to you later. But I just want to give you, like, what does it look like to discipline your children from, again, just early in uh, habits of the household? Eight habits of discipline. Number one, establish loving authority. Establish loving authority. He says authority intervenes, which means interrupts the sinful behavior, with loving strength. It's the opposite of sitting on the sideline and making requests. We're not politely petitioning our children to consider our point of view. We are parenting them. So establish loving authority. Second, pause for a moment. And, and, and Craig, uh, Pastor Craig talked about pausing helps us move from anger to discipleship. So you're, like, your, chi- your ki- uh, children are not the only one who needs to be discipled. You do too. <laughs> so in the moment, sometimes we want to discipline because we're being annoyed by the problems our children are creating. That's not parenting. That's just being selfish and punishing them. That's not what the Bible's talking about. No, no. We pause for a minute. Lord, help me. Help me to disciple my child in this moment of discipline. Thirdly, pray and talk to yourself. Ask the Lord for help. Teach yourself and say to yourself, I know my job is to go parent and shepherd and care for and discipline, not to respond out of anger because I'm annoyed. Fourthly, use body language and space more than words and threats. Our eyes and shoulders and hands communicate a lot. Early recommend sitting a child in your lap or sitting down beside a teenager or kneeling down to a kid's level. Knowing love is more powerful than anger. Let them know I'm having this conversation and disciplining you because I love you, to help you. Number five, he says, be relentless in seeking understanding. Our goal is to help our children understand their hearts. Not only what that they did was wrong, but to try to figure out why they did what they did. So they understand and see sin even in their heart, and then we point them to Christ and the Savior. <laughs> like, do you see this? This is sin. That's sin in your hearts. why you did that sin in your life. But this is the good news of the gospel. Now we point them to Christ. So again, be relentless in seeking understanding. Number six, he says, think carefully about consequences. Our goal in discipline is to get confession and reconciliation, not retribution. Grounding or timeouts or a pause, not an intervention. We want to be consistent in our actions and in the actions between both parents to be consistent in the consequences and make sure they're communicating and teaching and discipling our children. Number seven, insist on apologies as confession. Repentance requires action. So if siblings sin against each other, they need to apologize to one another. They need to say I'm sorry. They need to ask for forgiveness. And they need to hug. They might not like it, but teach them. Make them do it. You need to hug them and respond to them and let them know. So number eight is always end in reconciliation. Like what we're trying to do in discipline, every time we discipline our children, is what we see in Luke 15, the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes home in repentance, covered in filth, Ruined his life. And what does the father do? He embraces him. So every time we're doing discipline, the end goal is, like, for me, I know as I'm parenting my children that the reconciliation I'm looking for has happened on the other side of discipline when we can laugh together. When I can kind of tickle them or I tackle them, like, there's something, like, we're back to right relationship. That's the end goal of all discipline. And parents know that this is a gift. This discipline, it's hard. It doesn't always go well. A lot of times you end up having to apologize. Like, there's nothing more humbling than apologizing to like a three year old child. <laughs> I'm sorry I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And it's like, you know, who, who knows if they have any idea what's happening? You feel like a moron. <laughs> How sinful am I? I'm angry at a three year old. What is wrong with me? So, again, like, it can, it can go difficult, it can be hard, but this is what we do, and this is a gift. And parents, let me, and even young people, understand as you see and understand and think about church membership and discipline in the church, and understanding what that like. All of this matters because it helps us, even especially during morally tumultuous times. So the book of Proverbs, look at this: 20, uh, Proverbs twenty-nine, verse fifteen. The road and reproof, uh, the rod and reproof, give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Now look at verse sixteen and think about our cultural moment. Think about Timothy in the passage we just read, when the wicked increase. Transgression or sin increases, but the righteous will look upon their downfall Back to discipline verse 17 discipline your son and he will give you rest He'll give delight to your heart So notice sandwiched in between discipline is hey when when everything goes morally insane And wickedness is rising those who've been disciplined will see that and they'll stand strong as the wicked fall So this is how you want to know how do I prepare my kids to enter a broken world that is out of control You discipline them This is what sets them up to be able to withstand even all of the increase. Now I want to talk for a second to moms, and and grandmas as well, but primarily to moms. I became a pastor 10 years ago, Freedom Church in Lincoln, North Carolina. And I just want to tell you a little something that I've observed over a decade of pastoring. And I've watched this kind of happen again and again and again with young ladies, especially young, godly, really gifted women. So I've watched some women who are incredibly brilliant, PhDs, incredible entrepreneurs, incredible success in all kinds of ministry leaders, like incredibly gifted, godly women. And in their minds, they start and they have conversations and this is what they'll, they'll let people know pretty quickly. Listen, I'm not gonna be one of those stay-at-home moms. It's like, amen, I didn't say you had to be a stay-at-home mom. Like, amen. Like do what God's called you to do. And, and that's kind of the beginning place. But then, then something happens. And, and when they get pregnant, suddenly they, f- they find their desires start to change. It's like, wait a minute. I've done all this, and I was pursuing all this, and, and, and none of, nobody's saying that's wrong. But I find that suddenly I, like, I, I think I, st- I, think I, I do want to stay and disciple my, my, my child full time. But then the hurdle she has to get over is this hurdle of, but wait a minute. Like if, am I stopping all the progress women have made to do this? Am, am I somehow a failure or less than if I decide I want to do this? Now, again, to be clear, I do not think every family is biblically commanded to be a one-income family, dad being the breadwinner, mom being a a homeschool educator at home. I don't think every family has to do that. But what I'm saying is if you find in your heart a desire to disciple and be with your kids full-time, that's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed of. Like, there's not a queen on the planet that has a higher calling than that. There's not a CEO on the planet that has a higher calling than parenting. So I just want to say in the midst of that, if you find that's where you're at, don't, don't be embarrassed or ashamed by that. Understand from heaven's view, that's a glorious calling and desire. The Bible has a loftier view of motherhood than you can imagine. If God gives you the opportunity to do it full time and you want to, by God's grace, embrace it and know you couldn't do anything more strategic. Now, it might not feel that way, changing those diapers or talking to a broken-hearted teenager, but there's no impact you can make on the world like the impact of launching wonderful human beings into it. So understand fathers and mothers. There's no higher calling than this for all of us. And moms, let me give you a couple of heroes to look up to just real quick because they're in the Bible and I want to do it. 2 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, this young church leader is insecure and struggling. As for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, who did, who did Timothy learn this from? Go back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure it dwells in you. So Paul says, and listen, you got some heroes in the faith, Timothy, your mom and grandma. You got the faith from them. Cling to that faith. Trust that faith. Pastor this church in that faith. Be a missionary in that faith that you learn from mom and grandma. So again, this calling, there's nothing greater than, no higher calling than this. Look up to and be, and be willing to embrace mothers and fathers, the high calling of parenting. Now we conclude, thirdly, the way we have every other time uh, in this study. How did Jesus fulfill and transform the fifth commandment? How did he fulfill and transform? Jesus demonstrates In his incarnation, what it's like to honor and obey his father. Even when in his humanity, he asked and inquired to the father about this cup of suffering in the garden of Gethsemane. So we find out what does it look like to perfectly honor your father. Even when you're like, father, like in even this? Obedience even in this? So Christ is in the garden of Gethsemane, knowing the cross is coming literally sweating physically great drops of blood, knowing I'm about to drink the cup of God's righteous wrath, though he had no sin of his own, knows I'm going to suffer and die underneath the wrath of Almighty God. And we enter into his prayer clause at verse 36 of Matthew 26. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul was very sorrowful, even unto death, remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again it came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus, the Son of God, perfectly honored his Father. Even when that meant sitting beside the Niagara Falls of God's righteous wrath, looking, knowing, I'm gonna go drink it down to the last drop. My father, could this cup pass? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And yet, just so we're not twisted in our understanding of what's happening, he did this with great joy. Jesus was truly God, and in his incarnation, he truly is man. He really does understand and anticipate and really pray out and understand what it's like to say, God, is there another plan to do? Nevertheless, not my will. He really gets that as a human being, but also he's the son of God. He's truly God. And we know in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. (coughs) So the question is what gave him joy to honor and obey even when sweating great drops of blood? And at some level it's answered in John 10, 18 when he makes it clear his will's not against the Father. No one takes it from me. I lay it down, my life, of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I've got authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus knew Gethsemane was for Golgotha. And he knew on the other side of Golgotha was glory. He knew I'm going to suffer and die. And I can cry out as a son to his father. Is there another way? No, there's not another way. Not my will. Yours be done. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But after death, three days, I'm coming out of death. And in so doing, I'm going to reconcile all who look to me, to my father. And they'll receive the spirit. And by the spirit, they can now cry out, Abba, Father. They can have a perfect father because of what I've done. And not only that, I bring them into the church where everybody who's been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and as you come in calling God Father, guess what you get? Tons of brothers and sisters. Tons of mothers and fathers. So he understands the joy set before him, says, No, I'm crying out. God is another way. I will perfectly honor you because I know on the other side of this, every tribe, tongue, and nation is reconciled to this Father, into this relationship that the Son and the Father have by the Spirit. We're enveloped into it all. He fulfilled the fifth commandment, indeed, the whole law for us, so that we might be adopted sons and daughters of God. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3 Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith will be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, sons and daughters of God through faith. That's why he says to us in Romans eight, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. If you do not receive the spirit of slavery you fall back into fear but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also be glorified with him. Therefore, as Christians, we honor our earthly mothers and fathers. We take care of them in their old age. Whatever it takes financially, whatever it takes to take care of our parents, we do that. But also, we don't limit it to that. We love elderly We love authority. So we live in a culture that prizes youth, that prizes immaturity. Like everything that's popular is based on kind of the demographic from 15 to 25. But no, no, We we want to learn from the older saints. We have mothers and fathers in the faith, aunts and uncles in the faith. And we say, no, no, we want to honor your life and your legacy and your input. Like we want to take care of you. So as Christians, we take care of our own family. But as Christians, we also take care of our faith family. And we honor the elderly among us. And for those who had awful parents, let me say a couple words to you. Psalm 2710 is for you. Psalm says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. God means to be your father. So maybe you got all kind of daddy wounds. Come to the perfect father by faith. Let him heal those wounds. Let him father you. By the Spirit that would indwell you, come to him through faith in Christ the Son. But not only do we have Psalm 2710 for you, but we have the whole church for you, the family of God. And listen, just like every other family, we got some crazy uncles. <laughs> <laughs> they drive us crazy. They embarrass us. We're like, yo, can you stop being such a crazy uncle? But there are crazy uncles. Who come to the same Father, through the same Son, by the same spirit. We belong. So no matter what your experience was, <clears throat> in Christ, the best you can, bring glory and, or, or bring glory and honor to God by honoring and obeying your parents. And know, you have God as Father through Christ, and you have the church as your faith family. There are no orphans in the church. If that's true theologically. We need to make sure it's true experientially. We need to make sure people have family in Christ. Mothers and fathers in the faith, brothers and sisters in the faith, sons and daughters in the faith. Citizens of heaven also should be the best citizens on earth. So as we think about how we obey earthly authorities, let us understand we represent the king of kings. Christians have to be different. The way we talk about earthly authorities, we have to be different. So when it comes to politics, we have to be different. When it comes to policing and how we talk about police, we have to be different. So unjust policing, we have to condemn as uniquely wicked and awful. Faithful policing, we have to say that's heroic. Like we have, we have to say both. Both are true. Abuse of authority, wicked. Good use of authority, beautiful. We can't say one or the other. We must say both. And when it comes to politics, let me just, particularly for the younger generation, I just need to tell you, the older generation and I want to say this with all reverence and humility and kind of in between. I'm putting myself in between younger and older. It's probably not fair. I should probably just group myself in the older. <laughs> the older generation has not modeled this well for us when it comes to politics. Look at the last several presidencies and how politics have happened. It's bad. And the church, unfortunately, hasn't modeled a good example for us. The church often talks about politics more like CNN or Fox News. Without honor. I remember as a child growing up when if you said the president's name without saying president, you get corrected. You give honor to the president of the United States. Now we say something like the Donald or 45 or Sleepy Joe. That's, that's dishonoring. That's a problem. So a worldly culture can do that. No problem. Not Christians. Like we need to understand, no, we're breaking the fifth commandment when we dishonor authorities God has put in place. Now, we're in a democratic republic, which means we have responsibility, right? So they're not authorities the same way authorities would be even in emperors and ruling. No, no. Like, we have to voice what they're doing wrong, and we can be bold and correct what they're doing wrong, speak out boldly about what they're doing wrong, but we do so with respect, not like CNN or Fox News. So I'm not, I'm talking to right and left. I'm saying Christians must be different. How we talk about authority ought to communicate respect the world doesn't communicate. Why? Because we honor God. And we want to obey him in all categories, including when we're talking about police, when we're talking about politics. And we do this, and I conclude reading First Peter 2, just so you know, that's from the Bible, not from me. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. By the Spirit, we pray. Let's close. Father...